Hey, this is Pete Bauer from the Pete Bauer blog. Thank you for joining us today. Today, I have my daughter, Dorothea. Hi. She is in charge of marketing for Sunlight Press and has also been involved in the development of all of our novels so far. So we always value her opinion. And uh, today we have a lot of things we want to cover. Uh, we've done a lot of, well, some changes to our strategy. As if you're any listener to this podcast, you know that every week it's different. <laughs> what we're going to do is different. So nothing's changed there. We have some changes to our strategy. But first, we have a follower of our blog from Australia, and her name is Lynette Noni. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She just recently signed a contract for a young adult novel with a publisher out there in Australia. So congratulations, Lynette. That's very exciting. And she's also working on the draft of another young adult novel. So that's pretty cool. Lynette, if you ever want to share your experiences going through that process, that would be great. We'd love to hear from you. When I was in college, in fi I got a degree in fine arts uh, as an actor, sadly. And... Um, and when I was there, these kids from Australia came and they were promoting getting your master's degree in Australia. I really wanted to do that really, really badly because I've always wanted to go to Australia. But I couldn't afford it, really, what it came down to. It was really sad, but they were really nice kids and it was really cool to hear from them. And it would have been awesome. How awesome would it be to go to Australia to like go to school? I think that would be great. But I think it would be great. <laughs> And when I think things, when I think things about Australia, it's more in theory from photos and from what I know from a distance, because the more I read about Australia, I have to preface this. Insects and bugs really like me. They, they do have an affection for you. A frightening level. And the ones in Australia can kill you much more easily than the ones here can. So <laughs> I'm true. a little bit more wary than probably the average traveler to head over to Australia. <laughs> Yeah, because your insect to death ratio increases, you know, exponentially. Substantially, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. So, but I've always still wanted to go there. It just, it looks so beautiful and cool. And uh, I love their accents, you know. Anyway, congratulations, Lynette, on your success. And uh, keep us in the loop as to what's going on. So, last time we were talking about our strategy, our ever-evolving strategy of when and how and who to release these books to. I feel like strategy is probably not the appropriate word for where <laughs> we are right now because it's consistently changing. So our thoughts and our brainstorming about how we're going to approach and decide upon our strategy continually changes. Yeah, it's like the wheel of guesswork. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we originally thought, we'll go through this really quickly. We originally thought to release one novel a year on June 4th. That was the idea. And then we heard that you should offer something for free. And if you only have one novel, then you really don't have anything to offer for free. So then we came up with the idea of writing a novella. And we thought we'd write one novella, and then that would be the free offering, which would be used as a sales funnel to direct people to actually purchase the first novel in the series. And then we thought, well, what would be cool is before each book, we release a free novella. So for five books, it would end up being with five novellas released in conjunction with each book as a way to entice people to continue to read the series. But then we ran into the issue, and this was actually validated by one of our beta readers for our first novella called The Homecoming Incident, that the tone at the end of the first novella did not really match the tone at the beginning of the first novel. So we realized maybe we should do all the novellas at once so that we can slowly get the the reader to the correct tone 
so that we're not betraying them uh, when they read the first novel. So that's how it's evolved. And then we thought, well, we'll release all the novellas at the same time, the first one a little cheaper than the rest, and if you buy all of them at the same time, it's cheaper than buying them individually. And that's where we were. Now, what has changed since then? Well, since then, I know you've really enjoyed writing these novellas. You've created some very interesting stories that I think our readers will really enjoy, and you've put in place a lot of journeys for the characters to go on that I think will be really interesting. And our beta readers have actually been very responsive to those. So something that occurred to us was that maybe if people were interested in reading more novellas before the release of the actual first book, we would provide that for them as well. So now we're kind of playing with that idea, depending on how beta readers respond to the novellas. It's also something to take into consideration that while beta readers may love the novellas, they may also want to get to the novels. They may really enjoy that, but at the same time, they want to know where the characters are really headed. Yeah, and since the novels represent the end of the Gabby Wells character arc, they will be released at some point, right? What we're trying to figure out is if there's traction with the novellas, if that hits some sort of sweet spot, and readers request more of those, then we'll fulfill that request. I mean, that's what we should do. At some point, we will release the novels so that we can finish out that character arc, because we, you know, I have another novel series I want to start after that anyway. So, I mean, eventually you're just going to get tired of writing the character. <laughs> I don't know. It's a lot of fun, though. I really like them. You know, it's kind of weird as a writer. You just kind of like hanging out with these people, you know? That's the cool part. But anyway, so what we're trying to do is, is trying to be adaptive to what our potential audience may want to do. And also, I think by releasing the novellas and giving it some time to develop its own audience to see if it can. It also gives us time to play around with different marketing strategies. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So I think it's a good change to our strategy. So basically, we went from the strategy and synopsis is that we went from releasing five novellas to releasing the first novel to releasing the five novellas and being open to releasing more novellas if there's a need or a desire for those before we release the novels. And that's the change in strategy this week. And even though we're going to be talking about marketing a little bit later, one of the main thoughts that occurred to us is that the most important thing to do is to make sure that we're writing, or you're writing rather, I'm not writing. Yeah, you're watching me write. I'm watching you write, but I'm helping you develop the story, so I'm going to... You're going to take a little credit? I'm going to take a little credit. No, all right. <laughs> <laughs> While we're working on these stories, the most important thing to do is to make sure that it's the best possible story that we're capable of telling. So as we continue to talk about different subjects in this podcast, that's one of the things that really kind of has sparked discussion um, between us was that we really wanted to make sure that we developed the best possible story for our readers. C.J. Lyons, who I've quoted before, and I have some more information from her later on, she always says the best marketing an author can do is write the next good book. And that's the goal, right? And at the end of the day, you're going to write the best book that you are capable of writing, and you just hope it's good enough. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is our entire focus, the thing that we feel is different in our stories, is that we're talking about characters of faith that exist in the real world who are dealing with real struggles and challenges. And of course, because they're in fiction, they're kind of epic in nature. I mean, they're, they're big life-changing issues and challenges. But along with that, there's that layer and expectation of faith involved. To that end, there's a couple of really good articles out there. One that I read, and this is from the New York Times. It's from December 19th, 2012. It's written by Paul Ellie, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. 
It's called Has Fiction Lost Its Faith? And it's an essay he wrote. And he talks about the changes in fiction in the 20th century to the 21st century in relation to characters of faith and how faith is approached in fiction and consumed by society. And I just wanted to read some of the little segments of this because it's, it goes along with the line of what we originally thought before I read this, what we originally thought was missing in fiction and what we're trying to fill in that little niche. Some of the things that he says is, Christian belief figures into literary fiction in our place and time as something between a dead language and a hangover. Writers who draw on sacred texts and themes see the references go unrecognized. A faith with something like 170 million adherents in the United States, a faith that for centuries seeped into every nook and cranny of our society, now plays the role as some statues left behind in an old building, bewildering to the new occupants. And, and I'm reading not all of the art. It's, it's a four-page essay, but these are just some of the highlights that I think that we talk about that Christianity has become more of a cultural belief system than it has a religious belief system in our society. And when it becomes a cultural belief system, it is up for change, right? It will evolve with the culture. If it's a religious belief system, if you really believe in the tenets of Christianity, that God created everything, that God created everything, including time, and that because of that, God exists outside of time, and because of that, whatever God tells us exists for all time, for all generations, does not sway with the culture. And so all that applies in the long term. If it's a true religious belief, then it is the same for all time. But as Christianity has been absorbed into the culture, it's kind of lost its high standing in society and gets absorbed and then therefore can be ignored. And also because culture has evolved outside of faith, many businesses nowadays look at stories about faithful characters as something that's part of a very niche market. It's a very small group of people who are going to be drawn to these stories. But when you look at historic literature, for example, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, most of those characters in that story are faithful people, or they at least call themselves faithful people, whether they are or not. Even Javert, who plays what is perceived to be the bad guy in that story, he is being true to what he believes his interpretation of his faith is. Whereas Jean Valjean is also being true to what he believes his interpretation of his faith is. So faith is a very big part of that story. And it was written a very long time ago, but it's not part of this very small market. It's a very popular story. It's one of the most popular musicals of all time. So when you look at that story and how popular it is in modern culture, you would think that faith really doesn't play a very big part of that. But the characters are governed by their faith Faith or their lack of faith. But in the story, almost everyone calls themselves religious. Well, and if you look at the way, for example, Hollywood has treated Catholic characters, for example, priests and nuns, you can see that in the 40s and 50s after World War II, I mean, it's a good barometer to where faith was thought of in society. If you look at the pre-60s, you know, the, the best-looking actors, the most talented actors in Hollywood wanted to play characters of faith, whether it was Bing Crosby or Ingrid Bergman as a nun or whatever. I mean, the best actors were playing and portraying people of faith at a very high level. They were the sexiest-looking people. They were the most talented people. If you flash forward to now, they're usually character actors with awkward faces or all the uh, bad guys are now just not bad guys, but religious nuts. So you can see through that visualization the shift in American culture of where faith and people of faith reside. And Paul Ellie's article 
goes on to talk about that, and he says, In America today, Christianity is highly visible in public life, but marginal or of no consequence in a great many individual lives. For the first time in our history, it is possible to speak of Christianity matter-of-factly as one religion among many. For the first time, it is possible to leave it out of the conversation altogether. And this development places the believer on a frontier again, at the beginning of a new adventure. It means the Christian who was born here is a stranger in a strange land. No less than the Sikhs, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Soviet Jews, and Spanish-speaking Catholics who arrived from elsewhere. But few people see it that way. People of faith see decline and fall. Their detractors see a people threatening rearguard political action or a people left behind. And he goes on to say that America, the United States, has become like a do-it-yourself religion. But the religious encounter that authors like Flannery O'Connor described that forces a person to ask how their belief figures into their own life and how to decide what is true in it and what's worth acting on isn't really talked about anymore. He said tens of millions of Americans have asked those questions. Some of us find ourselves asking them every day, but even in fiction, which prizes the individual point of view, and in our society, which stresses the individual to excess, belief is considered as a social matter rather than an individual one. That's kind of like that Christianity moving into the culture. And so the fiction no longer looks at a faith struggle as an individual struggle, but as a cultural issue. And so we've seen that just from our absence in the material that we have consumed that, well, no one's answering the question that he says. We are all asking these questions of ourselves every day, people of faith, but fiction and movies and nothing like that is really presenting it. So that was one of the draws that steered us to creating the Gabby Wells series is let's take a story about teens. And one of the characters is just a really faithful teen. And so she's trying to put all that stuff together. Just it's a part of her life that is individual, and she is trying to figure out how does this affect my life. So if we operate under the belief that the people who will be reading these books have faith that is their own, and they are very individualistic people, then we can also take into consideration the fact that there are so many more opportunities for us to make our product available to them. Right. There are a lot of Christian bookstores around. They're not as popular as regular bookstores, but I have seen a lot of them. And when we were originally starting this process, one of the thoughts that occurred to us was, how do we get our product into these bookstores? But more recently, another thought that has occurred to us is, do members of our target audience shop in these stores? Who are the customers of these stores? And reflecting on that, we began to think a lot more about what our target audience does during the day. And the thought that occurred to us was, we really realized that the best way for us to make our product available to them was not to say, you have to go out of your way to find Christian material, but to say, yes, you find these stories interesting. You find stories about faith and faith-based characters interesting. And because of that, we're going to find a way to make our product available to you in a way that you don't have to go out of your way to find it. And that's a, a change, actually, from what we were thinking about last week. So last week, we were thinking about Well, let's go after our core group of those faithful teen believers. Since our character is Catholic, you know, obviously the shortcut to that is Catholic youth, right? And then we thought about, well, we'll focus on the Catholic youth because that's the low-hanging fruit in that respect. And then we will look at other Christian youth and really focus on that faith-based market. And when we looked at that and we were thinking about the integration of teens of faith in just normal society, 
I don't think it adds a lot more for us to go after other than our our low-hanging fruit. I think we go after the Catholic youth because they're going to be the ones that are going to probably most easily identify with the character because the faith is the same. But there wasn't a lot of value add, I think, to go beyond that as far as as limiting ourselves to the faith-based niche. I think the shift in our strategy in this regard was let's go after that core group more, not so much as a marketing strategy, but to build up a like street team of people who get it, who understand the character, and would be vocal about their support in it. If you listen to any author, the best thing that you can get as an author is a what they call a street team, and that's a team of people who love your material and love to talk about it. There was one author I heard on a podcast, she says she has a, a very large street team. One of them is a hairdresser who hands out her bookmarks to every customer. She didn't ask for that. That's just someone who's very passionate about your work. It doesn't matter whether you're doing a book of faith or not. You want a good street team. And so it seemed like an obvious choice for us, considering our material, that the Catholic youth would be a good starting point for a street team. We wouldn't exclude it to that, obviously, if anyone of of any faith wanted to be part of our street team and were passionate about the work. Of course, they could do that. But that was just a good starting point for us. But after that, we like, no, let's just, instead of trying to limit ourselves to that niche, Let's go after our street team and then just make it available to all the Christians and non-Christians everywhere through standard markets. And it's interesting that it took us so long to get to this realization because... We're very slow people. We are very (laughs) slow people. No, but when you think about it, of course they're normal people. Of course they're Well, that's the whole point of our books, really. That's the whole point of our books. But in the same respect, we are creating a product which, even according to that essay that that gentleman wrote, is different than what is accepted or expected from characters of faith or faith in general, right? So even though we believe it is something that can be consumed enjoyably by everybody, there's still that element that is different. And so obviously, I don't think it's a shock that we kind of lean towards, well, that's the comfort zone, right? That's a sweet spot. That's the easy marketing angle is, well, this is a character of faith. Let's go after those people who totally get that, right? But they're just as well embedded in the real world as the rest of us. So we shouldn't limit that. It took but us a I while that, to get there. But I think it's I think it was a logical progression of thought when it comes to marketing strategy. But the realization that I was referring to was not that we shouldn't focus these stories on people who will be more receptive to them. That's obviously the, the right way to start off your marketing plan. But I think the biggest realization was kind of thinking back on our own lives and going, when was the last time we entered one of these Christian bookstores without a specific purpose, like needing a card for baptism or confirmation or something very religion focused? Right. People, I think, are more likely to find our products in their daily life. And that's kind of what I was referring to was not necessarily changing the focus of our target audience, but rather making it available to multiple parts of their life, not simply their their faith. Well, and one thing that we made an assumption, and I don't still don't know the answer to this question, but we made the assumption that faithful youth go there right? Just because it exists. And the more we talked about it, we're like, well, we don't even know the demographic that shops at these places. So that's why we broadened the scope. Well, we made some assumptions that may or may not be correct. And so you're a young person of faith and all of your closest friends are, and you were thinking you can't remember the last time that you guys went into a Christian bookstore to actually buy a book, right? It's just a realization that our assumptions may not be correct. Again, it was one of those easy, low-hanging fruit kind of ideas, you know? Well, obviously, You'd go to a a Christian bookstore because that's where Christians buy stuff. But is it really where young adult Christians buy stuff? No, I don't know. 
Okay, so now that we're on marketing, I, I did want to um, talk a little bit about, we talked about our challenges is penetration into the market. And you were mentioning to me earlier that we need to honor the teen voice and what they're going through. Well, yeah, absolutely. When you're an adult, it's easy to look back on your teen years and go, man, I was stupid. Or think, why do teenagers do these things? This is not the right decision. But when you remember what it's like to be a teenager, your hormones are all over the place, you're very emotional, you're probably on a longer emotional roller coaster during your teen years than any other point in your life. And I'm including in that your wedding day and the birth of your children, because when you're a teenager, you have absolutely no control over it. And you just, you're going through all these big changes. And it's all new. It's all very new. With your body growing and developing and then your emotions are off the charts and your hormones. It's a very weird, emotionally charged time. And I think a lot of adults have the tendency to kind of dismiss that experience because they've already been through it. and they Or look back on it with, with a level of judgment instead of appreciation. So when you write these stories for teenagers, you have to keep in mind this is what they're going through. And it's a very confusing time. And then especially when you're writing stories about teenagers, it's incredibly important that you honor what they're going through at the time. So teenagers don't feel like they're being talked down to or like what they're going through is an invalid experience or it doesn't matter or life will be just so much better once they've grown out of this phase. Because it's a very weird, special time in your life. You never really have a time like that again. And it's important to honor the experience they're going through and not to necessarily dismiss it. Yeah, and I actually had the pleasure of working at a a children's cable network for a couple of years. And I remember there was a skit on one of their programs that all the adults thought was hilarious. And again, adults, we were in our 20s. And it got hammered by the youth because it was making fun of one of the characters on one of the popular TV shows. So it was one of those moments where as adults were like, well, obviously this character's a moron. So even the teens have to appreciate that. And they didn't because they're like, no, we kind of like this guy. It was a learning experience. And so it was one of those things where like, yep, we can't cross that line. That's a line that alienates your audience. And it goes also back to what we said last week, which is one of the reasons we're doing more novellas before the novel is we talked about if we release the first novella and then the first novel, because the moods are too different, that we would be misrepresenting the work, right? We'd be selling something that is not accurate. So it's important that you have that teen voice and you're presenting the material in honoring of that teen voice that you're writing about and not diminishing it. And one of the things about marketing too is the new thing with marketing, and this goes whether you're self-published or traditionally published, is, and I love this phrase, I think we mentioned it before, called authorpreneur, which means that authors can't just be writers anymore. They have to be involved in all areas of business. One of the things that um, C.J. Lyons gives out when you sign up for her newsletter is a thing called Dirty Little Secrets of Publishing. I recommend you check it out. But one of the things she mentions is that even for a book that is traditionally published, the average money spent on marketing, at least when she put this together, was about $800. $800. I mean, we plan on spending more than that self-published, right? So even if you're a traditionally published author, the onus is on you, unless you're one of the big wigs, right? Then they're going to do a lot of press and push. But the onus is on you to develop your brand, build your platform, to blog, and to sell as much as possible. And to this end, I was doing some Google Analytics training. And I, as I'm going through this training, I realized this completely applies 
to the shift in what is expected of an author, especially if you're going the self-published route. And what I mean by that is Google Analytics, they're, they're talking about the strategies of how businesses can use their analytics to meet their business objectives. When they split these objectives into six areas, I realized they apply to authors. And the six areas that they apply to their analytics for businesses are content publisher. In other words, you'd gather the analytics to know whether you're engaging your audience and how frequent people are coming by and checking out your stuff. Obviously, authors would want to know that. You would also track your analytics for e-commerce, selling your products, right? Your books, you'd obviously want to know that. You would track your analytics to see what lead generation, collecting potential leads. That's what people do with newsletters and all that other stuff. So obviously, that applies to the author today. You would want to track it for online information. In other words, you want to help customers find what they're looking for. So you'd want to help customers find your stuff, right? And the last one is branding. You want to track whether people are aware of your work, how engaged they are, and how loyal they are. So I found it very interesting that this analytics training that was specifically designed for businesses applies completely to authors. And that's how much of a paradigm shift there's been in between being just a writer who sits at home and writes and hands it off to the publishing company and lets it go to, nope, now you are a business. If you are an author, you are a business and you need to approach your work as a businessman or woman. Well, and truthfully, I think that reflects a major change in our culture because it's not enough to just go to an interview anymore for a job. You have to be established online. You have to have a good online presence. You have to be very professional in all of your interactions. So you really have to look at yourself as a business as well and how you're presenting yourself to the world. Yeah, I remember talking to you and your brother, I don't know, about two years ago, I think it was, about you, your online presence, your personal online presence, you have to consider a brand. In other words, a lot of teens, and again, it's part of the, the recklessness of being a teenager, is they're putting a lot of things online that do not always present themselves in the best way, right? And if you were a company, then would you do the same thing? So let's say as a teenager, you go to a party or you're in college and you go to a party and you get drunk and you're passed out and your friends put up pictures of you with them drawing on your face, right? Well, that's a picture on your Facebook status. But if you're a company and you're College Student Inc., do you want that party being representing your brand? In other words, would would Walmart post a picture of their Christmas party if people got hammered and did that, right? They would never do that. It would diminish and affect the value of their brand. Unfortunately, in today's world, because everything online never goes away, it's backed up and backed up and archived and backed up, you can't risk, especially as an author, as an authorpreneur, to put out things that are going to affect your brand negatively. It's just the new reality. And I think the biggest challenge for really, it's kind of um, the 20s and unders that have grown up with the social media, not seeing the long-term consequences of living a life on social media. So they're like on the forefront, they're on the top of the wave, and they haven't seen it crash yet. Like your kids are going to grow up going, well, I know not to do that online, right? Your generation a little bit younger is growing up going, I don't know, this is cool, not knowing the long-term consequences. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, and I just remember when I was a teenager and I got my first Facebook, I didn't even want a Facebook at the time. My friends kind of convinced me that it was absolutely necessary for our friendship to survive. So The social fabric of teenhood <laughs> relied on it. Yeah, so I went and I got a Facebook. I remember a lot of my friends asked me, well, when are you going to put your favorite movies on there, your favorite television shows and all this stuff? And 
I looked at them and I said, well, I don't really want people knowing that stuff about me if they haven't actually talked to me. Well, you're a pretty private person generally, so. Well, yeah, yeah, but I just remember watching that going, I know so much about these people that I never knew before. And now, given the nature of social media, you just allow anyone to follow you. You have complete strangers and you're giving them a lot of access to your what you think is your private information. So It is pretty scary, actually, and I'm surprised and grateful and thankful that it's not abused more. But, I mean, if, if you want to do something nefarious, it's not hard to go online and see and find someone and find out what they like, where they go, what their friends are, what school they went to, what they graduated with, what time they go to the gym. You could find out all that stuff. You go up to that stranger and go, Oh, you're a class of whatever? I'm class of whatever. I had that teacher. Did you have them? No. Oh, well, you know, I go to this place. You go there? That's so interesting. And suddenly you have this false history just because all of your information's out there. It's it's convenient in a lot of ways, but just like anything else, it could be misused for negative things. So because we have the internet, which is one of the most amazing tools of Ever. all time, it's yep. really remarkable. We also have to consider the long-term effects of everything that we do. We have to consider the long-term effects of this podcast. You know, Am I going to regret anything I say next week or in a year that I say here today? Because that stuff really does never go away. And that's something we also wanted to make sure we reflected in our marketing of Gabby Wells, that we represented the story as truthfully and as best we could so that in a few years, we look back and go, no, that was right. That was the right decision. I'm glad that we made that choice and the brand is consistent. If you look at through entertainment, through history, you'll find that, like, for example, in the 70s, they had a lot of really frivolous, silly television shows, Gilligan's Island, Brady Bunch, things like that. And the reason, and especially shows like Laugh-In, and the reason that those were so popular because the real world kind of sucked. The real world had Vietnam. It was a war no one wanted. People hated it. There was a lot of protests. There was a lot of upheaval. So people wanted their entertainment to be in opposition of that. You and I have talked about recently about why superheroes are so important. And it seems that superheroes are so coveted right now in entertainment because we don't see heroes in real life anymore. Everyone has feet of clay. If we lift someone up because they ran into a house and saved 12 people, well, that internet search and those reporters will find out, well, that guy got drunk you know, and got in an accident when he was 21, and suddenly that hero is no longer a hero. So the entertainment often is reflective of what is lacking or missing in society. And when we look at writing young adults, there's a lot of dystopian stories and stuff. And one of the hard parts about that is that the world right now is kind of difficult. There's a lot of struggle going on. There's a lot of uncertainty. The economy is still difficult and things like that. And so people are not going to want something that is completely reflective of that, right? They're going to want something more. And I think personally, teenagers have always wanted to feel like they're a part of something greater when they read, whether it's part of a greater love story than they're experiencing in their life or part of a greater family or part of a greater battle. Just being part of something greater is incredibly important to them because you have books like the Harry Potter series. People really identify with that because they can see themselves in the characters and suddenly they're a part of this really great battle and they're on the good side. And that's the nice thing about stories as well is there's a good side and a bad side and it's very easy to decide which is which. But one of the most important factors in all of those stories, be it the Harry Potter series or any other stories that teenagers find like very... Like the Hunger Games Like or the Hunger Games or... 
I know A Fault in Our Stars is a book that's very popular and now it's becoming a movie, is that there's always a sense of hope in them. In The Fault in Our Stars, even though the very nature of the story's tragic, there's a sense of hope in this young love that's blossoming. In Harry Potter, Harry is the sense of hope. In Katniss, there's a sense of hope that, you know, she's going to spark change that will bring justice to that society. And so having hope in stories, regardless of how dark they are, is incredibly important because if you don't have a sense of hope, you're going to find it very hard to be motivated by anything. So having hope in our stories has been one of the most important factors in our character development. And as someone of faith, that hope actually lies in the existence of God. Because at the end of the day, God, you think, can help you through anything. No matter how bad life gets, there's hope if you believe. That's the great thing about it. I read a really interesting book about a guy who had visions of going to hell. While he was in hell, he did not see or was aware of the existence of God. And just that absence was hopelessness. Because as awful as his experience was, there was no escape clause. If he couldn't make it happen, and in hell, you can't make it happen, right? Then there was no hope. So in our stories, it's that tie to faith that no matter how bad things get, God can lift you above it. And I think that's a a core ingredient to where the hope resides in our stories. And not only that, but Gabby's experiences and growth as a teen into a young adult and that faith journey with her is one of hope as well because she learns to look beyond herself and realizes that whatever sacrifices are required in her life and others, if it's done for the right reasons, is a symbol of hope for others too. You and I also had a very interesting conversation a few months ago about the nature of power. And something that occurred to me when we were having this conversation was things only have power if you believe they're of value. Right. So if you don't find money very valuable, then people who have money are not going to have a great deal of power over you. They may have more influence in society because society finds money very valuable. But if you are a farmer and you can provide for yourself and you're good at bartering and you can sustain your own life without needing money, then all of a sudden money has lost its power. In America, our dollar bills are very, very valuable. But if you go overseas, it's just a piece of paper. So that conversation kind of led us to the stories of the martyrs. And something else that occurred to us was the martyrs had the power in every single situation they were in. Because even though they were being tortured and murdered by whoever was in power at the time, they weren't afraid of dying. Because they were not afraid of death because they knew they had eternal life coming, and because they knew they had God, this power, this torture that these people were inflicting on them had no value to them. They knew they just had to endure it for a little while longer before they got what they were really looking for. Yeah, and one of the the things, if you read about the early martyrs, especially during the persecutions, they completely tied to the fact that a slave is not greater than its master. So the idea that Christ was able to survive all of that suffering and come out resurrected and overcame it, and that they're relying on that faith, that belief, allowed them to manage through that short-term suffering. Because it's like, well, if God is willing to do this for me, then how can I not be willing to do this for God? So even the torture itself is risen above its own torture because the power is not in the pain. The power is in the sacrifice for God. And so they would welcome it. You know, they would welcome that, like, let's go. If this is my path to heaven, let's go. Let's get it on, you know. And it's very powerful. One of the stories I read about, and I really need to to read it again because I can never remember the names of the church father involved, but there were 
martyrs who were people that were being persecuted for the faith, and they were told to renounce their faith before they died. And the church father went up and saw their bodies, and the people who died not renouncing their faith had a serene look on their face because the power was not in that moment. The power was beyond that. And the people who renounced their faith were killed anyway because they wouldn't even stand up for their faith, right? They were going to die anyway that day. But the people who renounced their faith right before they died all had a look of terror because they realized that they gave up heaven because they put power here. Power is elsewhere, then your hope is elsewhere. If you give all the power to your paycheck or your boss or your publisher or whatever, then they control you. If you put your power in God and you understand that relationship, then suddenly anything you're going through, if it's for sacrifice for that, then suddenly it's tied to hope and it's tied for a hopeful future after this life. And that's been something that we've personally experienced in our lives. There have been moments I know with you and mom where you really needed something to happen. So you pray to God about it and you said, look, Lord, we're going to have to put our faith in you because there's no way we can make this happen. But we're hoping you'll help us get through this situation. And another Christian family who you really didn't know that well at the time, came forward and said, hey, we can help you with this situation. We just feel like we're called to help you with this situation. So when you put your faith in God, you're not just putting your faith in God, even though he's completely enough, you're putting your faith in God and in his people. You're right. And well, because God's canvas is everything. If we rely on ourselves, it's like we are one color in the world. Like I'm a light gray, like my hair. (laughs) And, um, And so if I rely only on gray people, then you know what, then the opportunity for a miracle, so to speak, is nothing. But God's like, well, I have all the colors in the universe at my disposal. I'm going to take blue and that's going to come solve your problem. You're like, I didn't even know blue could exist out there, right? So God's canvas is so much greater. And, And the one thing I've learned through all of these personal faith journeys is that God already knows the answer to everything that we're doing. He already has a solution and it may not be your solution. It's going to be a solution that brings you closer to him. So it may not be what you want, but at the end of the day, you're going to look back and go, well, of course. I mean, I've yet to have a time where I offered something up and said, all right, Lord, surprise me. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't see a solution here, but go ahead and surprise me. And I've yet to look back and go, that made no sense. That's a stupid idea or that didn't work. I've never seen that happen. There have been so many times in my life when I finally, because I'm very stubborn about stupid things when it comes to my relationship with God. And there have been plenty of times when I finally caved in and actually done what I thought God wanted me to do. And I've had all these really great moments and revelations about faith and about life. And God's just kind of like, yeah, it's almost like I told you to do this forever ago. (laughs) Yeah. Catch up, would you? And you know, people who don't have faith, they're going to listen to this and just go, well, you're just putting together pieces of life to to fit your preconceived ideas or your preconceived notions. You're making miracles out of nothing. It would have happened anyway kind of thing. And the way I look at faith is that the greater your faith grows, it's kind of like you put on different glasses. We see the visual spectrum of light. There's a lot more light information out there that our eyes can't comprehend. So I think as your faith grows, it's like, What would happen to your eyesight if you could see the x-ray portion of the light spectrum? Or if suddenly you could see gamma rays? People would go, well, yeah, you're just, look, that's that's obviously has nothing to do with x-rays. And you're like, dude, I see x-rays. I saw what happened, right? So people who don't have faith are going to look at things and they're not going to see the connective tissue that makes all this work together. But as your faith grows, it's kind of like you're putting on different pairs of glasses and you're just seeing a greater spectrum of the way the spirit world and the material world kind of interact. And that's really kind of Gabby's faith journey. In the first novel, her mystery is very worldly bound and it has moments. It's a test of faith and it's worldly bound. 
During her faith journey, her mysteries, her challenges, as she puts on different glasses as her faith grows, her challenges and her mysteries evolve with it too. And they're tied not only to this world, but to the next kind of thing. So that's her evolution in the novels. And so our job right now is in the novella is where Gabby starts the novels having accepted to try to live her faith. The novellas are more about a teen who has been raised in a faith and has to get to the point where she goes, okay, I'm going to try to live it. And that's kind of the journey that we're trying to do. She hasn't even gotten a pair of glasses yet in the novellas, and she's going to eventually get them by the end. So taking all of this into the consideration, one of the most important things we've talked about in regards to marketing is how we're going to represent this story to our potential readers. I studied public relations and advertising when I was in college. And even though I really did enjoy my major, there were a lot of times when I studied advertising and looked at it and said, you're manipulating people into buying something they don't need. And personally, I think that that's really offensive, but that's basically what advertising is in a lot of cases. What was really offensive was when advertising presented a product as something that it wasn't. So it's really important to me when we embark on selling this Christian story that we don't manipulate people into thinking that they're getting something that they're not. For example, I know that Disney had a lot of issues with The Lone Ranger because the way that movie was explained in the trailers was that it would be kind of a fun, little bit of a quirky action movie. And it's Disney, so it'll probably be good for the whole family. And families who went to see the movie were not prepared for the very dark and disturbing moments of that film and were very offended that the film was sold to them in that way. And I know several people who left the theater, actually, they were so upset. So when we're marketing our products, we want to make sure that while we do things to entice our readers into picking up the story, that we're not betraying their confidences. Like tricking them into buying a Christian book, right? Exactly. Yeah. What's interesting about that with the Disney experience with The Lone Ranger is that the same people, filmmakers who did that, did Pirates of the Caribbean. And in the trailer, that told you exactly what the story was going to be. You know, it showed you that there were ghosts involved, right? And so you went into there totally expecting that to happen, and there was a darker side to it. So it's interesting that the same people, where Disney did it so exceptionally well with the same exact artist, didn't do it that well with the other one. Maybe because they just they didn't think it would, the target audience would pay for it. It's interesting to me that they hit so well on one and missed on the other. So anyway, we have covered a lot of ground today, Dorothea. We have. And almost about a tenth of it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Seven. Okay. 97.3. 97.3. Yes. Thank you very much for spending time with us. This is where we are this week in life. So next week, we will probably have started over. Or going to write nonfiction books about quilting. <laughs> <laughs> it's also plan C. Yes. Anyway, so thank you very much for joining us. Please, as always, if you'd like, leave a comment in the comment section. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can email us at contactus at sunlightpress.com. See you guys next time. Bye.